Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this evening, which is also the end of the chapter and the end of the book. Malachi chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to John. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. We'll be reading through verse 13 this evening. The word of our God. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here. Is this to be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon? Whenever I walk into a room, nothing seems to happen. Uh, no one announces my presence. Uh, people go on talking like I'm no big deal at all. And of course, the reason why they do this is I am no big deal at all. And I suspect that all of you can relate to regularly entering rooms without any fanfare taking place. But that's not the way it is with the President of the United States. At least on formal occasions, before the President walks into a room, he has a messenger go before him who announces the President, who opens the door and says, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And then it does not matter how gripping the conversations people were engaged in, everybody turns, everybody looks, Everybody puts all of their focus on the president 
as he enters the room. Uh, this is, in fact, the most exciting time for me of watching a State of the Union address, which I have to confess I've stopped doing because politics has gotten a little bit hard on me. But for many years, I would do this just sort of out of my sense of being an American. And it really is an extraordinary moment in American politics with all the backbiting and fighting that goes on between the parties is when the joint House and Senate come together. And then the sergeant of arms, he comes through the doors, he takes about six paces into the room, and then with great formality, he declares, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. And you know, every single person in the room stands up, they turn to see the President, and they clap. He gets a standing ovation, no matter who, which party he's of. For a brief moment, everyone forgets that he's a Republican or a Democrat. He's just the President of the United States. And because of the dignity of his office, everyone stands and applauds. Well, as we come to this portion of God's word, we are not coming to a judge or a president or an earthly king making his entrance. We are coming to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, as we heard this very morning, the one through whom everything that has been made has been made. The king is coming into the world. How would people receive him? Well, shockingly, there was no standing ovation. In fact, when the Son comes into this world, he is rejected by the world at large, and even more shockingly, he's rejected by his own people. He came onto his own, but his own people received him not. Nevertheless, the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness will never put it out. Verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. See, Christianity is not an abstract philosophy built on esoteric ideas. The gospel, according to John, begins by declaring truths about the Son of God, truths that have always been true. They were true since before time began. But it quickly moves to concrete events that take place in history. Christianity is fundamentally a historical religion about what the true and living God does in the midst of time. It is about the God of glory acting in space and time in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem a people to himself and to establish the eternal reign of the Son of Man over the entire universe. Christianity is about Almighty God working in and through historical events that could be seen and heard and even tasted. And although the world would not want to embrace the Messiah when he came, God the Father sent a very special messenger before him because it was the Father's eternally begotten Son. Who was John? John the Baptist is an extraordinary man in his own right. 
The Old Testament prophet Malachi prophesied about John's ministry. I mean, right then and there, we know he's more than a prophet. He's not just another spokesman along the way. John's role is so significant that the Old Testament, hundreds of years earlier, prophesies about his coming. And of course, that also takes place with his father, Zechariah. John's father, Zechariah, after the angel Gabriel had given him the message about him being born, is filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesies about John going before the Most High. See, John was not just another faithful Jew waiting for the consolation of Israel, remarkable as that was with men like Simeon. He was the Lord's chosen instrument for this utterly unique mission. Jesus himself would later declare, I tell you that of those born of woman, none is greater than John. Uh, Huge crowds turned out to hear John preach. I mean, massive crowds. It, It was disruptive to what was going on in religion all throughout Israel. And many were wondering if John himself might be the Messiah. As we continue to read through John, we see that the Jewish leaders sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? You remember how John himself responds? John confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice, a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You understand what the Jewish leaders are thinking? They recognized that John was a man that needed to be reckoned with. They recognized he was sent by God. Right? Not just an important figure, but an important figure that God himself has sent into this world. And they wanted to understood exactly who John was and how they should deal with him. John was a man to be reckoned with, a man sent from God, but John insisted that he was merely a voice, a servant sent to prepare the way for the Messiah who was still to come. That's the point of verses 6 through 8. It's not about the voice. It's about the one that the voice would announce. Now, in one sense, John, of course, was a light. Um, You are all called to be lights in this world as well, reflective lights, lights that would reflect the glory of God in Jesus Christ into this world. But when John says that he's not the light, he's confessing, I am not the authentic originator of the light. I am merely a mirror and a voice. Jesus, of course, would later describe John as a burning and shining lamp, a reminder not only of his distinctive calling, but his remarkable faithfulness in that calling. Uh, He was called to be a reflective light, and by God's grace, he certainly was 
in the most privileged ministry that anyone had ever had up until that point in time. All Israel was going out to see John, but the Gospel of John wants to make clear that the forerunner was not the true and eternal light spoken of in verses 4 and 5. There is an infinite qualitative difference between the messenger, that is John, and the one that he came to announce. Good thing for us to remember as well, uh, it's okay as you study church history or you read your Bible to become inspired by some of the Lord's choicest disciples. That's actually a good thing. Uh, it is sometimes said if no one's a hero to their valet, that is not because there are no heroes, but because all valets are valets. If you cannot look at godly men and women from the Bible and find inspiration from them, that actually may reveal that there's something not quite right with your own walk with the Lord. Uh, I, I don't know how you look at someone like Ruth or Deborah or Abraham or Elisha and not find that there's something really remarkable about them that inspires us to greater faithfulness. But we should never imagine that we are followers of the Apostle Paul, a mere creature saved by grace. We are followers of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God. We should not miss the fact that John was sent by God to speak on God's behalf. That is, he's the Lord's ambassador. His message is not his own. An ambassador speaks on someone else's behalf. So when John testifies to Jesus, we ought to remember that is God the Father testifying to Jesus. John's own ministry is one of the many ways that the Father will testify to the person and the glory of his Son. Of course, uh, later on, uh, the Lord himself will rend the heavens, as it were, at our Lord's baptism, and he will speak from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Please don't miss the fact that when John is speaking, it is the Father speaking through him and testifying to his own Son. Why is John sent? John the Baptist was to turn the hearts of the people back to their God, lest they all be consumed by judgment. That's what Malachi says in Malachi chapter 4, what John says in his own ministry. He was sent to turn the hearts of the people of Israel back to their God. John came not that people would believe on him, but that they would believe in Jesus through him, and that believing they would have life in Christ's name. The Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they, they have a lot in common. They kind of look at things together. The Synoptic Gospels all portray the manifold work of the Baptist. But the Gospel of John focuses almost exclusively on John as a witness. The whole point of John is he comes before Jesus to point to Jesus. This bearing of witness was not an end in itself. Behind it was the purpose that through him, all men might believe. The centrality of witnessing to Jesus is not an exclusive emphasis in John's gospel, however. Right? John makes a particular focus of this, but it's actually found all throughout the New Testament. 
For example, the Apostle Paul would later write, How then will they call on him, quoting from Isaiah, actually, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of him who bring good news. And so the work of bearing clear testimony to Jesus will continue until he comes again. Nevertheless, John's role is unique. He is the prophetic forerunner ordained that is commissioned by God to prepare the way of the Lord and to announce the beginning of Christ's public ministry. It is a remarkable testimony to the greatness of Jesus that his forerunner would himself be such a huge figure in first century Judaism. In one sense, God is lifting John up and going, do you see how great he is? So that John could say, compared to Jesus, I am nothing. I am not even worthy to loose the sandals, the straps on his sandals, or to take them off of his feet. Who does Malachi say the forerunner will come before? I was struck by this, I don't know, 15 or 20 years ago. It's a sign I'm getting older. I told Kristen... Uh, just recently, like 20 years ago, uh, I was struck by this. But it was somewhere in there. But when you read, you read Malachi, we're not told in Malachi that the forerunner will come before the Messiah. Did you notice that? In Malachi chapter 3, the Lord says, I will send my messenger before my face. And in Malachi 4, which we read as our Old Covenant reading this evening, the forerunner will come before the day of Yahweh, right? The day of the Lord. What this means is when the forerunner shows up on the scene, we are not merely expecting a new anointed king, as great as that is. And of course, Jesus is the new anointed king. But Malachi is saying he's more than that. He is Yahweh. He is Emmanuel. God with us. That's a remarkable truth. Make straight the way for whom? Make straight the way for the Lord, that is for Yahweh. This means that the one coming after John was not simply the Messiah. You can hardly get those words out of my mouth when you think how great it is that the God would send his Messiah. But the one coming after John was also Emmanuel, God with us. Now, if the forerunner was going to have tens of thousands of people following him around, going not to some comfortable resort, but out into the wilderness to hear him preach and to receive a baptism of repentance for their sins, what would happen when the Messiah himself came on the scene? Pause and think about your expectations, not about what you already know. But, but if the forerunner's having that greater response, what would happen when the king himself shows up? Verses 9 to 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
Let's tackle this one verse at a time. Verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Uh, Because John says that the true light gives light to everyone, raises interesting questions about exactly what this light is or what Jesus is the light is in fact doing. Uh, Many church fathers saw this as a reference to general revelation. That is, general revelation that's given by God, and they're saying that must be in Christ, right? Or at least in the pre-incarnate Christ, that is in the Son. It is only through general revelation that it is possible for human beings to know or reason about anything at all. So in this sense, Justin Martyr was not wrong when he affirmed that Socrates and the Stoics and others who had lived in conformity with right reason were really, if unconsciously, directed by the pre-existent Christ. And as I say, that is not wrong, although I don't like to get a little bit out there on the speculative thing. What I would simply want to say is they did it by the revelation of God. Right? They did it through general revelation. That's the only way they could know anything at all. Nevertheless, verse 9 is not focusing on general revelation, but on the light the Messiah shines when he comes into the world. Right? The gospel writer John, and John the Baptist as well, but the gospel writer John is not focusing on how the pre-incarnate Christ was necessary for people to have right reason about anything. He's talking about the incarnate Christ. When Christ comes into the world, he gives this light. The emphasis here is on the spiritual illumination which dispels the darkness of sin and unbelief. As Leon Morris points out, His giving light to every man is not closely defined. Well, that's why there's a discussion. There is a sense in which the word gives light only to those who believe, for those who do not believe in him are yet in darkness. But as James tells us, every good and perfect gift is from above. There is a general illumination of the whole race, and it is the common teaching of the New Testament writers that God has revealed something of himself to all people, sufficient at least for them to be blameworthy if they reject what God is revealing of himself. So one common way to get at this is to compare the light of Jesus to the light that comes from the sun. Now, we're talking about during daytime, right, when our earth is in the right uh, position. The sun sends forth sufficient light to illumine everyone and is displayed that all might see. Therefore, if someone does not see, it is not because of a defect in the sun. People can't see the sun. They have a problem with their eyes or something else. And that's also true when it comes to seeing the Son of God. He is the light that is shining. But people come to him with hardened hearts that are darkened, and they don't see the light that was right in front of them. Indeed, the Gospel of John will make clear that the fundamental problem that people had with Jesus is not that they did not understand the light, 
but that they hated the light because their deeds were evil. Verse 10, speaking of Jesus, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Um, John is remarkably skilled at saying big things with just a few words. Here he repeats the word world three times to great effect. First, John makes clear that Jesus is in the world. The verb suggests that Jesus didn't just pay the world a fleeting visit, but that he was in the world for some length of time. The world didn't miss sort of a fleeting glance, you know. Did, did, did you go out at the restaurant and I think I saw some famous actor go through. Did you catch it? No, I missed it. It's not the way it was with Jesus. The world did not miss out on catching a fleeting glance of Jesus as he zipped through the world. Rather, Jesus came and he pitched his tent here. That wasn't the problem. The world missed out on embracing the true life because it did not love him. Very important reminder for ourselves that unlike the way the world tends to think about knowledge, knowledge of God is closely connected to loving God. It is, as I've pointed out to you before, a gift of God that he reveals himself to you and he reveals himself more and more to those who trust him and to those who love him. The reason why the world missed out on embracing the true light is because it neither loved God the Father nor God the Son. Second, John makes clear that the world owed its very existence to the Word. And third, John makes clear that though the light had come into the world and the world was made through him, nevertheless, the world did not know him. With this third use, there is a subtle shift in meaning in the term world, but it's worth paying attention to. The first two uses speak of the earth. That's not what the third use is focused on. The first two uses speak of the earth and everything that is in it. The third usage, the world did not know him, refers to people specifically to those to whom Jesus appeared who are alienated from God because of their sin. It's not just people in their physicality, as though we need to be somehow transcend being finite as some modern theologians have suggested. The world here is people given over to their sin. Uh, the fact that creatures would reject their creator is, of course, shocking. Yet this is the consistent witness of God's word. Uh, for example, in Romans chapter 1, the Apostle Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, God's revealing himself. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, 
and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. See, humanity's problem is not that we do not have enough information. It's the way people often talk about it, like, how do you find God? Or do you have to have faith to take this leap beyond the facts that are before you? But that's completely wrong. Everybody has enough information. God, according to his own word, is revealing himself actively to everyone. And that revelation gets through so that every single human being on the face of the earth knows enough to know that there is a God, that he created them, and they owe him allegiance. And they take this truth and they suppress it and exchange it for the lie. Well, if that's what people do with God's general revelation of himself, you follow this connection, if that's what people do with God's general revelation of himself, it's not quite as surprising, but they do the same with his special revelation. Whether it's his written word, but in our focus this evening, the incarnate word. They didn't start from neutral. They were already suppressing the truth because they hated God. So when God appears more fully to them, they hate it all the more. Men would love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But the really shocking truth comes in verse 11. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Uh, for nearly 2,000 years, the Lord had been working with, blessing, delivering over and over again the descendants of Abraham that he had gathered together into the nation of Israel. He had given this people his scriptures, and he had set his name in their midst. If anyone should have welcomed the Messiah, surely it was the nation of Israel. It was the Jewish people. But this was not to be. While the widespread rejection of the Messiah by the Jewish people is morally shocking, it is not without Old Testament precedent. This is not a one-off thing. As the Lord had solemnly declared to Isaiah many, many centuries earlier, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Or as the Lord would later say to Jeremiah, from the day your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Beloved, one of the shocking things, the first time you read through the Old Testament pretty quickly and get the, the big flow of it, is to realize how few of the Jewish people had a heart set on God. The very people the Lord delivered out of Egypt, almost all of them die in the wilderness, and we're told why, because of their lack of faith. And we have one glorious generation where Joshua leads the people into the promised land, but the very next generation is going into unbelief and beginning to go after the religion of the pagans that God had dispossessed before them. 
And you just follow that up all the way to the time of Christ. There's a small remnant of believers, and it's glorious to see their inspiring example. But most of the chosen people that is chosen as part of the God's chosen people of Israel were in fact hardened against him. Jeremiah and the other prophets endured a great deal of persecution, not simply from the world, not from Gentiles, but from the God's own chosen people. They might have hoped that once the Messiah came, the hardness of hearts of their fellow countrymen would all be turned back to the Lord. But in the mysterious providence of God, the hardness of the Jewish people, at least in part, would continue until the fullness of the Gentiles would be brought in. Instead of a restored and excited ethnic Israel, now turning to bring the gospel to the nations, in God's plan, it would be their own hardness that would lead to the gospel being scattered to the Gentiles, and only toward the end of that period would the Lord turn the Jewish people in mass back to himself. Uh, that's my own interpretation, by the way. That's a disputed view at the end, whether or not there's going to be a mass of Jewish people converted before Christ's second coming. Um, that's the word of your pastor, which I believe is faithful to the word of God, but you should note that it is not universally held. Well, if we stopped right here, um, this would be a pretty bleak sermon. I mean, this is not good news. But I remind you, this is called the gospel according to John, the good news according to John. This is not the end of the story. As I reminded you this morning, verse 5 reads, the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out. Indeed, the darkness will never put it out. Now, if you're reading the New International Version, you may have noticed that the NIV renders verse 5 differently than the ESV does. The older version of the NIV reads like this, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Now, those things sound very different from each other, but they're actually based on the same idea. So let me just say a few words about that translation, because I'm sure if you're not reading it, you will come across it. First, the New International Version is an excellent translation. I commend it for your use. I highly commend it for your use. Second, the Greek term in question means to lay hold of something. Uh, that's how you get two different translations. It could be to lay hold of something for the sake of understanding it, or it could be to lay hold of something for the sake of wrestling it to the ground and overcoming it. The NIV says, takes it in the first way, at least in the old New International Version, to lay a hold of something in the sense of grasping it intellectually, that is, comprehending it. Both translations are therefore at least plausible on the surface. Actually glad the updated NIV that came out a couple of years ago, they actually changed the translation to be much closer to the ESV because they realized that's a better understanding in light of John's gospel. Uh, the new translation, the new NIV says, the light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not put it out. It's almost the same translation. So why is this the best way to understand the verse? Three reasons. 
First, it is the way that John uses this word elsewhere in his writings. If you have to understand what a word means in any particular context, you need to pay attention to the context and to the author. You ought not to simply go to a dictionary, flip it open, find out there's five definitions, and pick the one that you like best. Right? That's not how we do careful study of God's word. And John uses the same term elsewhere. For example, in John chapter 8, when he talks about the woman seized in the very act of committing adultery, he writes, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. That word caught is the same word that's used here. Right? It's a word that the ESV here translates overcome. Now clearly it does not mean that the Pharisees understood the woman who was committing adultery. They laid hands upon her. They grasped her. So therefore, it's a natural way to think he's going to use this term elsewhere, if that's his consistent style, and it actually is. Second, it isn't even entirely clear to me what it would mean to say the darkness understands or in this case, does not understand the light. You have to do a bit of intellectual gymnastics. You can do this really quick so you miss it. You have to say the people in darkness don't understand the light. That's not what John says. He says the darkness does not, in this case, understand the light. As the ESV, I think, rightly puts it, does not overcome the light. In fact, that's how the metaphor works. And think about this. You're in a dark room. It's the middle of the day. You're in a dark room with the blinds drawn. You open up the blinds, what happens? The light floods into the room and dispels the darkness. That's how light and darkness work with each other. If you go back to that same room at midnight and you have your lights on, and you open up the blinds, darkness does not flood into the room. Rather, people on the outside can now see the light shining out. That's what's going on with Jesus. There is a conflict, as it were, between light and darkness, but it is the light that dispels the darkness. Darkness does not overcome the light. The light overcomes the darkness. And John is saying here, the light of the darkness has not overcome it. Third, and most importantly, the idea that the darkness does not extinguish the light is the understanding that fits with the rest of what John is saying, right? The immediate context. If the passage ended at verse 11, it might, with some stretching, make sense to say the darkness did not understand the light, but the passage keeps moving forward toward the good news that Jesus brings. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There is a great division here between those who reject Jesus and those who receive him. When Jesus comes into this world, he creates a crisis. A crisis is a circumstance that demands a decision and separates those who decide this way from those who decide that way. 
The presence of the light of Christ forces us to choose either for or against him and then to face the consequences of our choice. But what or who causes us to choose differently? If the difference is found inside of us, that's one thing. If it's found outside of us, that's something else. As John will make clear in chapter 3, the dark impetus to reject the light is found in each and every one of us. Right? By nature, each and every one of us needs to be born again. Right? Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he can't even see the kingdom of God. We need to have new life given to us from above, where God gives us new life, and now we can see, now we trust, now we love him. The Lord in his sovereign grace will grant some of his enemies new life from above. He will cause us to be born again. It is interesting that most of those who embrace the truth that God's sovereign grace is necessary for us to be saved, uh, when they get in discussions with those who want to water that down a bit, just naturally go to Romans. Uh, everyone loves that. We go to Romans and we see where Paul makes clear that our salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone. What I want you to realize is that truth isn't taught in just one or two scriptures. It's taught all through the Bible. And in fact, it's taught in John every bit as clearly and every bit as forcefully as it is taught in Romans. How are we born again? John says, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I'm not really sure how he could say it any clearer. Let me just read that to you again in terms of God's sovereign grace. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those three negative expressions rule out any possibility that the way we get into heaven, the way we get into God's family, is because we, of our own free will, simply choose God. John is telling us plainly how we moved out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. God did it. Now, that first phrase, not of blood, is almost certainly, not quite certainly, but almost certainly targeted against those Jews who thought they were automatically members of the family of God because they were, biologically speaking, the children of Abraham. Please note that God did not merely rescue us from hell, although that would be astonishing in itself. John tells us that the Lord gave us the legal right to become his children. Right? You've been adopted into God's family. God doesn't look at you and say, I'm going to let you go. God looks upon you when he forgives you, and he doesn't say you are free to go. He says, you're free to come. Welcome. You are now my beloved daughter and my beloved son. And frankly, beloved, that just blows my mind. Well, how should we respond? How should we respond to this portion of God's word? Let me suggest we ought to respond with gratitude and with confidence. There are two shocking truths in this passage. The first is that God's very own people rejected him 
when he came into the world. This horrible act of betrayal brings to naught any notion that human beings have some good to contribute to our Lord's gracious plans to redeem the world. But the really shocking truth is to discover that God's plan was not to rescue good people, but to save a portion of his enemies and to make us his very own sons and daughters. Uh, beloved, that's why we sing Amazing Grace. I'm always amazed when I come across churches that are changing Amazing Grace to take out a wretch like me, and they change it into a person like me. But the reason why God's grace is so amazing is because I of myself am so bad. I am so desperate. I am so hopeless. And it's all of God. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. Let us sing that with gratitude and with joy. Second, God's sovereign grace in our salvation should give us confidence as we seek first the kingdom of God in our day-to-day -day lives. Because your salvation is entirely from God, we can have confidence that the work he has begun in you, he will surely bring to completion. You are perfectly secure in his love and in his sovereign grace. And so as we go out into the world to participate in the Lord's own mission to reconcile the world to himself, we know we're going to face opposition. Jesus has, in fact, promised us that we're going to face opposition. In this world, you will have tribulation. Jesus makes that abundantly clear. But the narrative flow of John's gospel also makes clear that the outcome of these struggles is not in the slightest bit of doubt. Jesus Christ is sending us, he's sending you and me, out into a battle that we cannot possibly lose. For the light continues to shine in the darkness, and the darkness will never put it out. Amen.